Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another clear day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's programme we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be alongside Nick Redding on the programme. Nick is the Managing Director and co-founder of Redico. Uh, Nick, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Scott. No, thank you for having us. It's a real pleasure, Nick. Um, The reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that this generation of business leaders is going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected your operations in the last few months. Sure, yeah. Um, It's an interesting question. So I guess operationally-wise, not much has, has changed um, in terms of how we operate the, the company. Um, I guess over the last kind of 18 months, we've worked quite hard to, to get the culture and the setup of, of the company in the place that, that we wanted. So in terms of how we run the company at the moment, people kind of work the, the hours that they choose, the kind of days that they choose, and we don't really have any kind of restrictions on, on leave. It's kind of a, a focus on, I guess, output rather than, than input. Um, and that's kind of as long as like the work gets done, we look after our our, our clients and we, we keep pushing the, the business forward. Those are the kinds of things that, that we're focused on. So operationally, operational wise, the switch to, um, to to working from home sort of full time was relatively straightforward. We've kind of been operating that way, at least in a I guess a flexible capacity with most of the team working a couple of days from from home. So switching to full time operationally was was um, relatively seamless for us, and um, we were kind of set up to to do it. Mm. And thinking of sort of how you've had to go about adapting to the uh, the pandemic, even sort of if it hasn't been a wholesale change that you've had to make in terms of operating the business, is there anything you would say that that experience has taught you from a business leader's perspective in terms of adaptability or flexibility, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think the biggest change um, for us, like other um, businesses, we were impacted. From a financial um, point of view, with mm. um, clients pausing, clients putting things on hold, so there was that initial period during sort of late March, early April, where um, I guess every every day kind of felt like a, a week in terms of trying to trying to get through it, trying to work out um, what you were going to do, um, how you're going to kind of approach it, um, and I think the the biggest, I guess, the change or the challenge that we saw in, in front of us was. How do we use this time in the most efficient way? Um, we probably lost around, I guess, 25% of, of our business in, in a short period of time. Um, and I know there's a lot of people have been impacted to, to a greater extent. And, and we kind of looked at that and um, we got, we just discussed it as a, as a leadership team, really, as to how we wanted to, to use this period of time. Um, and the consensus was that um, we would use it to make the business stronger um, coming out the other side. And that was kind of uh, the mantra going into Q2, was what can we do in the next six to eight weeks to make the business stronger so that when we do come out the other side, um, we can take advantage of those opportunities. We can scale back up. We can look to take advantage of, of, of recruitment and new business and, and those kinds of opportunities. The way that we're kind of set up at the moment is 
in terms of how we run the business financially, we have kind of six months worth of overheads or six months worth of operating costs um, in the bank um, to almost enable us to, to get through these, these kinds of periods, which kind of means that if we were to, to lose all, all clients, we could survive for, for, for six months and to give us that time to, to turn it around. So whilst the initial hit to, to the business in terms of uh, revenue impacted, forecast and planning, everything like that for, for that quarter, um, but the financial planning that we'd put in place over the last sort of three to four years enabled us just the time to sort of step back and go, like, how do we want to approach this? What's the, the right thing to do for, for the business? And it, it stopped us, I guess, making any knee-jerk reactions mm. and, and more focused on, okay, what is the right thing to do um, for the team, for the long term of the business, and what have we, I guess, what are the things that we've kind of put off doing that we know we should do, but now there's kind of a little bit of downtime with certain clients that have paused or, or, or stopped that we can actually get done to, to implement across the, the business. And I guess that was our real focus for, um, for Q2. And that shows some real proactivity and leadership there, having a plan in place, having sort of reserves there, having shown some real prudence. And that means that you don't have to be so reactive with the changing guidelines and changing circumstances. Um, We are seeing, of course... um, a re-emergence of uh, the economy now with uh, businesses beginning to reopen and lockdown restrictions lifting. With that in mind, Nick, do you see now a clear route forward or is it just a little bit more complicated than that? Um, I, uh, I guess from, from our side, so we've, uh, this week we've reopened the office. Um, again, flexibility around um, people that want to come back. Um, there, there's no requirements. If, if people don't want to come back, then they don't need to and that's that's a message that we're presenting to the team indefinitely kind of moving to a remote first hub second like where we change the dynamic and the layout of the office to be more of a, a breakout area more of a more of a hub than necessarily um a an office where it's just full of tables and there's two or three people in and it feels like a, an empty office just trying to restructure it in that way and i think that's a lot of where companies returning um to work will, will look at i think for me the biggest thing that, uh, that comes out of this um, I think is the stigma around working from home both from I guess um, bigger global um, organisations um, but also at a, I guess a, at our level just dealing with, with clients on a day-to-day basis like a lot of clients have been forced to, to work from home we've been forced to work from home through, through lockdown and actually that kind of human video context that it's it's okay if you're kind of working from home in your lounge somewhere different if one of your children walks in i think that that breakdown of that barrier around um the stigma around working from home and, and not being efficient and not being uh, as productive and actually more switching it to people are are productive or even more productive when they're enabled to to be trusted to be treated like adults and to to give that flexibility to work work around their their own lives and i hope that what that's kind of conversations that have been happening have just been accelerated by maybe sort of five six seven maybe ten years uh, in terms of some of the big corporations now actually going well you look at google that they're not gonna um not gonna enforce anyone returning to the office until 2021 um july 2021 so there's conversation that for me this is kind of brought um, what the sort of smaller, more agile companies and agencies will have been doing for a while to the forefront of 
of conversation. I think the biggest challenge going forward is hopefully keeping that momentum and allowing that freedom and that flexibility, and we, we build on that. But also, and I guess it's the reason why we reopen the office, um, is to give people that need that space um, the ability to, to come back. I'm very conscious, and we, we've made a concerted, concerted effort over the last three, three or four months to really focus and have the conversation around mental health. Um, and one of my concerns mm-hmm. is that everyone's got their own different situations going on, their own home life, their own family situation. And so it, it's not as easy just to say everyone works from home indefinitely. Some people need that break. Some people um, are at home with parents, at home with um, partners, at home with kids. They are sharing accommodation. That whole working from home isn't as, at the, you know, at the moment, isn't as, as flexible. And I think my concern um, is that the longer that goes on, the potential longer impact on, on mental health, which is kind of one of the reasons why we decided to, to reopen, following sort of government guidelines, following impact, um, input from the teams who have done surveys and who would want to come back, what they feel comfortable with, et cetera, and kind of build that into our reopening plan. So for those people that do need that space, that the option is available to them. So I suppose when it comes to the um, workplace of the future around office environments, you can see it being more of a hybrid environment going forward, because as human beings, of course, we are ultimately social creatures. So I think it means that there will always be a place for that office environment, but it will be more for maybe one to three days a week as opposed to five days a week. And then people will have that flexibility to work from home on a personal basis as and when it suits them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously, this is a difficult conversation because I've got my head on on from from my industry and um, for us as a, as an agency, there are some industries, there are some companies where it just it's just not feasible to to run a business working from home. But I think for what, those where it can, I think it's really I think what COVID has done and the positive to to look out of it from a a business from a forward thinking um, perspective is that actually we kind of we should. Um, reverse it and it should be work from home first office second um, and that's the that should be the the default position um, that, that, that we take or that we will be taking um, but if, if people want to, to come in and still have those conversations and still have that interaction which I think is really important I don't think the office is, is going to disappear completely I think it's just going to evolve and it's going to change and I'm very cautious about just making a statement where this is kind of the end of the office um, because like you said people need those interactions people need those um, sort of human elements to build relationships to build trust so that you do have a team that can get on that can get things done and that's a very difficult and different challenge if you go completely remote first it's not that it's easier it's just it's just as hard but you just have to work in, in different ways so for us, we'll, we'll go back to like a, a hybrid model where we'll bring the team back together at certain events. We'll continue to do face-to-face, but it'll be kind of more flexible. People won't feel um, that they have to be in the office to be seen. Um, it's more if you, want, if you don't want to come in for two, three weeks and you want to work from home for whatever's going on in your own personal situation, that's fine as long as you're getting stuff done, pushing yourself forward and helping push the company forward. And it's just about, of course, making sure that that progress and that productivity keeps ticking over uh, from a leader's uh, perspective um, as well. Um, 
thinking about now the uh, the future, particularly over the next 12 to 18 months, Nick, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, I'm interested um, to understand what you feel is on the horizon for you and for Redico and what you're hoping to achieve during this time as we're still grappling with COVID, we're adjusting to this new normal and we're looking to sort of shake off the shackles of the pandemic and then hopefully emerge from it in earnest. Yeah, um, it's, it's a it's a really good question. I think at, at the moment, in terms of like forecast and planning, we're really looking towards the uh, at least financially to looking towards the the end of the year. Um, it's I'm, I'm aware that there's a few things on on the horizons that are likely to create more bumps in the road. Um, second wave um, in the UK impact of what's going on in Europe. We've got potential long-term or longer-term recession, global recession potentially. We've got Brexit um, at at the end of the year. So there's a lot of things that potentially impact um, businesses up up and down the country. And I I guess our our focus really is just continuing to to build that financial stability that, that we have um, in the company, just making it over a longer period of time, so that if we need to adapt and, and change, then then we can. Um, and just continuing to sort of say, okay, like for us, like with the, we're looking at it in a, in a positive light um, in terms of what's changed from a if even from a recruitment perspective. So now that there's more flexibility, people are more able to work from home. That kind of opens up. Um, possibilities for us in terms of recruitment like people now can work for us who potentially wouldn't have considered that that before um, whether they're abroad whether they're in the UK whether they're in um, different parts of the, the country so when we're I guess in terms of growth and, and possibilities this for us this has kind of moved the conversation forward so that there is exciting opportunities ahead in terms of recruitment. I think that there's a lot of things on the horizon that are unknown. Um, and the best thing that we can do is just be financially prepared to, to ride those out and adjust if we need to in a similar way that we've been preparing for an event that may disrupt us financially, which was COVID, but we weren't necessarily, we didn't know that was going to happen, but we knew we needed to be prepared for something. So just continue to take that, that approach and, and like I said, that the financial preparedness gave us the mm-hmm. opportunity to just take stock, to take time, and not make any knee-jerk reactions. And I think that's the continuation. Like we've we've got a five-year plan that we're that we're working to um, that, that's focused on on growth. And although this has kind of delayed that a little bit, there's now opportunity to to accelerate that that we've managed to put in place because of how we've approached Q2. Mm, certainly going to be interesting to see how those plans come to fruition um, as well Nick and considering that I think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the show perhaps in a few months time just to see how things are getting on in that respect yeah sure Uh, I'd love to I would really welcome that opportunity, Nick. I've really enjoyed having you um, on the programme to discuss your take on uh, what's going on in the world at the moment and your views on leadership in that context. It's been hugely insightful. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, hopefully, do please take care and stay safe with all still going on because there are still a great many variables in this, as we know. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here. Indeed. Um, And to you, Scott, as well. And thank you for your time. Likewise, Nick, um, thank you ever so much uh, for joining us on today's programme. Thank you. 
I was speaking today to Nick Redding, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Redico. And coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett made a name for himself during his political career, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, including that of Education Secretary, of course, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. And he enjoyed such an illustrious career despite being blind from birth. He was recently elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, 
opposite uh, political party to the, the present government. I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.